0: this great future, you can't forget your past. Care for the earth and make our resources last. Fix the wrong now with no hesitation. So we can provide for our next seven generations. We can't eat the concrete.
1: Welcome to the Little Brown Podcast. This is a podcast about uncomfortable pasts and precarious presence for indigenous people. The Little Brown Podcast is about head takers, White burdens and expensive
0: G strings. This is B-
1: not B- the Igorot experience. This, is, this is our Igorot.
0: Colonization born from this land. The Aina is our mama. Water bursting out from the belly of Papa. The source of wealth and riches for Kanaka. Water bursting out from the belly of
1: So welcome everybody. Welcome to episode two, part two, where we continue our discussions around the little brown movement, but this time in the diaspora. So last week, we ended the episode on a very reflective moment of this culminating time of our present right now, where social movements From the Philippines, what is now called the United States, and basically across the world, there's an uprising going on. People are being activated to demand their collective freedom, to demand for collective justice, and to assert their right to sovereignty, self-determination. And so today, we are going to continue that discussion, specifically looking at the movements happening in Hawaii on Mauna Kea. So for this episode, I am going to be your moderator again. This is Mayo, and I am currently on the unceded lands of the Moekma Ohlone, commonly known as the East San Francisco Bay Area in California. And with me today is...
2: Hi, this is Charlie, I am currently on Unceded land of the Penland Ohlone tribe of the Greater East Bay in San Francisco, California.
3: Hi, it's Alan, and I'm here in Camp 7 Baguio.
4: Hi, this is Kirvin, and I'm coming in from Metro Manila, the country's capital. Hey, this is Faye, based in Baguio,
5: Benguet, in the Philippines. Hi, we're here joining in from the Hawaiian Islands, which rightfully belong to Native Hawaiians. Today, I also have the distinct pleasure of welcoming our first guest, Jordan Phoenix Kamuela Gestrick, who is here to discuss the movement to protect Mauna Kea. Jordan was introduced to me by a mutual friend, Uluvehi, so shout out to Dee. When I told her what our next topic was on, she was like, I know someone who will be perfect. He's super humble, works in Aloi, and an all around awesome guy. Before I pass the mic over to him, here is his official bio. Jordan was born on O'ahu and raised in Kalihi and Kapahulu. He is a Hawaiian Ilocana farmer, caretaker, and educator at Uupo Heo in Kailua on O'ahu with a nonprofit organization, Ka'ulu. He holds two bachelor's degrees, one in the Hawaiian language and the other in Hawaiian studies, both from the University of Hawaii at Mānoa. Jordan also enjoys photography and documenting whatever catches his eye.
6: Maikapi kāpī i kala <laughs> iha a a kala i lehua o hanakahi a padalana ina kala kahelani mai kāaina kōlana o kapalikiko kōlana e a me nakoa a nani o Philippines aloha pū me hanaka akoa fauloa ho e ho alohinei a me a ho e olo olo mamuau ma zoom hoi aloha. Uh, mahalo for having me. Basically, just acknowledge the lands that you all are on right now, and I'm currently on illegally occupied Hawaiian land, this Kingdom land, and uh, I'm just blessed. I'm grateful. I'm humbled to be here and to have this platform to speak on behalf of Kanaka Hawaiian people, you know, indigenous Filipinos, uh, Filipinos all over the world, and for my kupuna, my ancestors as well because of them that I'm here today and I just wanted to acknowledge all of them and I'm by no means an expert I'm just a student and for sure just blessed to be also a leader and a leader in training as well so aloha to everyone mahalo Marie and the whole crew for having me aloha
1: aloha Aloha! We are so excited. Like, as we told Jordan earlier, he's our very first guest on on our podcast for this very first season um, sure. Sure. of the Little Brown Podcast. And <laughs> there is definitely an affinity there. And I also must admit that Jordan, you're like the first native Hawaiian and Filipino person that I've met. So I'm like, ooh, I'm so excited to to just absorb like the stories you will share with us today and as you heard earlier you know our tagline is this is not the igorot experience this is our igorot experience so we really wanted to break those stereotypes of this monolith of like what or who native people are because like other than the fact that that's like super traumatic for us because we've lived through those experiences of being pigeonholed or you know having to fit a mold for others we wanted to create this space to really engage in a dialogue with each other you know be in community with one another to share our experiences and also like build these bridges in solidarity with other native folks
6: yeah for sure i was born to parents who were right out of high school and my mom is full filipino and her parents are from the Philippines, from Locus norte and Ilocos sur and you know they moved to america like a lot of immigrants to have opportunities and better life so i was born into that household and for most of my childhood i grew up in that household and especially summer times uh, grew up around my cousins who you know had both parents who were filipino my mom is filipino and my dad is part filipino but also hawaiian german and chinese But he pulled a lot of the the Germans, so he is really fair. And so I'd always get weird questions, you know, like, oh, what is your dad? And, oh, what are you? And I think more than ever now, I'm, I'm proud of all that I am because it makes the whole person, you know, that I am today. And all those stories on my mom's side and on my dad's side, that all makes who I am today. And yeah, I'm grateful. You know, I'm blessed.
3: So I did want to ask a little bit, like, do you know anything about the indigenous peoples from the Philippines at all, or what is your knowledge or experience of them?
6: Yeah, thanks for that question, Alan. Um, you know, growing up, I heard the word Igorot, and that's like mm. the only kind of inkling and you know knowledge I have, unfortunately, growing up. And I, I always questioned it, like I have heard of it as being like mountain people. about the dogs in the back (laughs) (laughs) but i just heard of it as like mountain people and then it had like a negative connotation like a negative kind of like you know tied to it in some ways but i also thought it was like super cool like mountain people so like menehune and in hawaii we have menihune, but we also think of as mountain people or people who come out and they work at night and they do their work and they build these huge structures just out of rock and then they they like in the day you know so it's kind of like this far off almost unknown thing but I, I saw it as like oh okay what is this and i questioned it and then as i started to um learn about my indigenous identity as far as native hawaiian i always thought like oh could the mountain people could igoro be like indigenous filipinos you know what i mean i looked into it a little more and I, I can't say that I know specifically, you know, specifics about the different uh, groups of people in the Philippines. And I, I love to learn and uh, different resources y'all want to send my way. I'm totally for it. I was <laughs> long overdue. You know, I've been trying so hard to, to revitalize the Hawaiianness ness in me. But, you know, for a long time, I had a lot of pride. And it's mixed feelings, too, about being Filipino. Because you grow up in Hawaii, you're Hawaiian first if you have Hawaiian blood. Then when you're Filipino, it's like you have these stereotypes like, oh, you're only supposed to become a nurse or you're only like, you know, a landscaper or whatever. And there's these different stereotypes in Hawaii and, and it's probably different, you know, in the States. I always have mixed feelings like, oh, OK, when, when Manny Pacquiao is on TV, I'm cheering. But when my neighbors call me Igoro because I'm dark and I work hard and it sounds like it's a, it's a negative thing, then oh, I don't like being Filipino, you know. So <laughs> to me, is, I'm so searching, you know, but I think moving in the right direction by, by hanging out with you guys and, uh, you know, just learning. I'm I'm always open to learning.
1: We We really are excited to have you here. And I don't know how much Marie prepped <laughs> you, but the first part of the Little Brown Movement episode, I asked this question at the very end, which is with all of these, struggles that we're encountering as Indigenous peoples that we've basically inherited, right, the struggle. It's a generational struggle for our right to our lands and to live on our lands and practice our ways. The question I ask is, how do we win? I feel like the common narrative especially around indigenous people is we're always in the deficit like we're always needing a white savior or we we are you know whatever whatever statistics say about how we're gonna be extinct or endangered or whatever, where in fact, it's like, no, like, there's a reason why we're still here. And a lot of it is because of what our ancestors had done to make sure that we live and our culture and our people continue to not just survive, but to pass on this wisdom around carrying on the ways of our indigenous community. So our first question that we're also looking forward for Jordan and Marie to share is what do indigenous movements look like when we win?
6: I guess from my experience and coming from Mauna Kea and you folks introduced another you know, movement of Mauna Kea led by the native Hawaiian here in Hawaii, It's um, there's been a lot of winning. <laughs> so have hope, you know, everybody out there, have hope for for all of our people, all indigenous people out there, you know, you're not alone. And you're looking at this battle. I believe we are winning, you know, but we've had to suffer. And it's not just a battle that was last year or started in 2015 or when the first telescope went up. It's been a battle since colonizers first came in and have continued that thread to today. So, what we're defending is bigger than ourselves, bigger than me. So I just take it on with great responsibility and humility because I want my family, my descendants to have a better life and a better future. And Hawaii in general, just have a better future. So it started for us here, you know, I can go back to the overthrow and how our kingdom was overthrown illegally. And there's a lot of you know, documentation on that. And there's a real history on, as written by a native Hawaiian, the queen, you know, Liliuokalani, She recorded it in her journal and in her writing, but she was basically imprisoned in her own home while white businessmen and Americans uh, did whatever they wanted to here in Hawaii. And that just led to the illegal annexation and then us becoming a state in America. Throughout that time, late 1800s, early 1900s, Hawaiian language was banned. Children were beat in schools because that's the only language they knew. So what would come out of their mouths were Hawaiian words, right? And they're learning this English language that was so foreign to them. And, or maybe they already knew it, right? Maybe they were taught English and they didn't want to speak English because Hawaiian was their mother tongue, Olala Hawai'i was their mother's tongue. They were forced to speak English and they're forced to write on the board, I will not speak Hawaiian hundreds of times. And that was a punishment for speaking Hawaiian. That in itself was a tool of colonization and a tool to force us to forget our, our history and who we are as a people, our identities as Indigenous people, and there are leaders in the community who have pushed for years to understand the language, and now that we've been able to, we're becoming more educated on our laws, our rights, our history, those things that we can't forget, like our our nation being illegally occupied, things like that. You know, Hawaiians are educated, we're getting together, we have great leaders who we're standing behind, and you know, it's an exciting time to be a Hawaiian, it's an exciting time to be an Indigenous person and i think we'll get more into that the movement of Monica as i think you guys might have questions or guiding thoughts
5: i also want to emphasize the revival of the hawaiian language yeah because last week i mentioned that growing up here i did learn about hawaiian history and culture in school but that's because Hawaiians fought for that to be included in in our curriculums, right? As wonderful as it is that promoting Hawaiian culture and history and language is an official requirement for the DOE, the Department of Education. We also know that the lessons currently being taught in our schools are still not enough. It's still lacking in so many ways. And like Jordan was saying, there was a point where Hawaiian language almost died. Similar to how we talked about last week where we weren't allowed to speak Filipino in our own homeland. Can you imagine if DepEd, the Department of Education in the Philippines, made it a requirement for schools to teach about the different indigenous cultures in the Philippines using curriculum created by indigenous people?
1: That's a very integral question here because the success story of Kanaka Maoli, the Native Hawaiians, is that they educated themselves about their own culture and from like the understanding of The push for that that I got from Jordan, and please correct me if if there's something missing here, is that they wanted, like Kanaka Maoli felt the need to learn their languages so that they can understand like basically strategies and stories and knowledge from their ancestors. So there was a need, there was like a collective purpose for wanting to learn your language and using that to apply it to something specifically which is I want we want to create our own curriculum And that's something that for Filipinos, because we were taught by our colonizers that we couldn't speak it and that they're trying to unify us by forcing us to only speak only in English or only speak in Filipino, which is really only based in one regional language, Tagalog, that that was a way to unify us. So they're like convincing us that we're not unified, that it's not okay to be diverse and that They needed to create this mono national identity, which was their strategy to force us to only speak one language, punished us if we didn't. So, which is why a lot of us here on on this podcast, we've kind of unpacked like the traumas behind when we wanted to learn or when we were prevented from learning, why it didn't work, why it didn't happen, and why DepEd still pushes this mono national identity of being Filipino and only speaking one kind of language. I think Kirvin wanted to share something too about the reflections on language.
4: I find so many similarities to the struggle of language here in the Philippines as well. For the question of if, whether we're trying to teach our learners their native language, there are several projects of the Department of Education that required public schools to actually teach the mother tongue from kinder to the third grade. But there are certain problems that I think until now they're trying to address. First is, for example, in Baguio City, what is considered a mother tongue there? Since Baguio City is a a multicultural hub. So there are certain areas or clusters of public education institutions there that decide which mother tongue are they going to use, despite several speakers of Ilocano, Ibaloi and Kalkana in one area. So they will choose one language. And it will be the distress of a learner who doesn't know Ibaloy to actually learn Ibaloi in, in class. But other than that, while they're learning their mother tongue, by the fourth grade until 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 they will be they'll start learning about the national language. But without the strong foundation for the mother tongue, I think the depth ed is a little bit Like misdirected in their efforts. You just want projects that would talk about being more inclusive but not really doing the groundwork, not really listening to the communities. You know, certain problems that the communities might have or certain solutions that they want to propose. It's all an echo chamber of legislators and educators talking about issues that are pretty much the community can address or can provide solutions. So I think what we can learn based on the discussions happening right now is the value of mother tongue based education can also not just strengthen the knowledge of your culture, but also learn from your culture's history of resistance and why these languages are needed in order for us to, to grow learners that are not just aware of their history, but also what's at stake or the things that we want to, to have them understand about history and try to change in the current scheme of things. At this point, the Depth Edge should focus more on grassroots conversations and building solutions that the community actually agrees to, rather than just a top down approach where they decide in Congress and they just implement and then blame the teachers at the end of the day. So, paranggalon lang. Anyway. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Kervit, that's a wonderful point that you make because by the time Olala was finally allowed to be spoken in the schools, it was like the 80s. A hundred years had gone by, right? And the number of native speakers had dwindled so much that it was yeah. challenging to find enough teachers. But the education system did allow cultural practitioners to come in and guide creating mm. the curriculum. So there was consultation happening. I think there should still continue to be consultation yeah. so that curriculum can be enhanced. But yeah, that's critical, is that you work with the communities.
4: Yeah. So, in the language game of the Philippines, in their goal to preserve certain languages, certain languages will end up dying. Just because they have to to focus on one language of education. I think another case here that's problematic, it's not just in Baguio City, but also in Pangasinan, where half of Pangasinan is Ilocano speaking and half of it is Pangalatok. I forgot the article, but a recent study indicates that Pangasinan is a dying language already because the number of speakers are getting older and older. So, yun pa. We also have to do the language profiling in the Philippines to consider the age of speakers and you know, other factors. Not just have this project that would make DepEd some kind of a cultural historical hero, neglecting issues on the ground because rarely would I find community experts, cultural practitioners to be included in that kind of conversation. And, and I think, you know, listening stories from Hawaii, that's what's been happening, is inspiring, you know, for educators as well. And also for educators to sometimes step aside. Having a degree does not make you credible to talk about your people, your history, your culture. There are certain people who don't have degrees, but actually know more about your people and community. So we need to provide more space for that. We need to come down from the ivory tower
6: it's a powerful thing when we know our language we we know who we come from where we come from and our stories that connect us to this land and our origins
1: so that's why i think coming back to this original question how did kanaka maoli win this game of like basically convincing their department of education yo we need to go set up a curriculum to make sure that Native Hawaiian language will be taught. How did they do that? How did they convince them? Or is it a matter of convincing? Because I'm always like, I don't want, you know, convince convince white people, convince your colonizers to accept you. You know, like that shit already is triggering for me. Is that what happened? Or was there another strategy?
6: Um, I don't know if I'm you know the person to really talked about the intricacies about how it happened as far as like the legalities but I know that a school was approved to open up and have preschoolers basically to learn the language from native speakers from elders who were in the community and kind of like what you're saying Kirvin, like a lot of these elders were on their way passing and the language with them as well so there were several people there's a group of people and they were at a range from maybe young adults to Maybe all the way to like their 40s, 50s, they saw the need, right, for Hawaiian to be uh, learned by the children, because that's the only way that it's going to live on. Once the kupuna, the elders pass away, the language goes with them, the knowledge goes with them as well. So in the 80s, like Marie was saying, like the school Punanaleo was approved to, to open up and based off of Kohangareo in Aotearoa or New Zealand and basically is how they were able to revive their revitalize their language and have their language come back to life basically in the community you know even after that after it was approved and there were schools opening up here and there it was really a community effort it's kind of like you, what you were saying Kervin in Hawaii there are so many people pushing for these things but Department of Education or the state didn't see the need to provide funding, they were going to approve like, oh yeah, you can have these schools, but a lot of the funding, we won't necessarily give you what you need. Basically, you're getting scrapped. So a lot of effort came from just the heart of the people and the willingness for people to step up and elders, they were already, you know, on their way out and they felt like this was my last thing I need to contribute. So, a lot of them were in the schools, you know, not even getting paid they're in there for free and teaching the kids. I think that's where we need to go as far as saving our languages. Our little communities are in Hawaii, we call it Kipuka Kipuka are like it's an analogy so Kipuka are like these little crevices in the rocks on the mountain and in lava right when it dries, and then dust picks up and it creates this little hole where seeds can collect and little ferns can grow and then trees can start to grow and basically that's how a forest grows so for our language to continue to grow and come back to life we need to look at the kipuka. we need to look at the little pockets in our communities where that language is almost dead i need to go spend time with that elder take down as much as i can from her record as much as i can and then learn how to speak with her or else you know it's gonna go away we're not gonna have it anymore I saw like a short documentary on a language up in um, the United States in the continent about a Native American. Even that's a term that, you know, is an umbrella term, right? Native Americans. But it was a tribe up there that were trying to revive their language. That's basically what they did. And it was like two, three people. And it was kinda of, it was sad to watch, but it was also inspiring. That's basically what we're doing as Kamakamali, and we're winning by seeing children learn the language and these children are growing up and they're becoming educated. And now they're taking that whole system of, okay, I need a degree to be credible in the eyes of the colonizer. Okay, I'm going to get a degree. And then I'm going to learn how to create curriculum for these schools. And then they're going back and saying, look, I have a degree. I have a master's degree. I have a doctorate degree in education. And I'm going to show you that I can do it. I have this degree that you said that I need. And look, I got it. I'm gonna go change the world now. Hey. <laughs> expetive, def- expetive. Right? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. One of the like nuggets or gems that I got from your story, Jordan, is really how powerful mobilized elders can be. Because when you're a kid, when you're young, you can't say no to your grandma or grandpa when they force you to sit next to them and listen to them talk story about their life or what they've been through. So... It's like, wow. And we talked in the previous episode too about Igorot or indigenous resistance movements in the Cordillera and, and how a lot of it was also led by, organized, mobilized by the Apongs. It was the elders, both male and female, and probably all of that in between. <laughs> and with the education system, I'm really seeing the, the activation of the elders and then the elders being activated simultaneously activating the younger generations and equipping them with that knowledge or with that wisdom and reminding them why it's still relevant, why you still need to learn it because as indigenous people, We are being convinced by society that we don't need to learn our language. We don't need to learn who we are. So if there's people in our communities that we interact with every day and we love and they're, you know, part of our family (laughs) taking care of us and they're telling us, you know, you need to learn this and we are making space for that to happen. It's almost just like, I wish I had that. You know, I really do.
6: Yeah, I love what you said about we have to listen to our grandparents, you know. And definitely what has happened, you know, they, the elders came in and I don't think the kids understood that and that's that's the crazy thing about it. It's like they just spoke to them in Hawaiian and they had no choice but to speak back in Hawaiian because they're like I got to eat, so I'm going to try, you know, as a child. And I think just the approach of, you know, when Hawaiians were forced to speak English, it was such a forceful thing in and in a brutal way, right, for them to speak English, but then if you look at the way our elders were encouraging us to speak Hawaiian languages with grace and with love and with also desperation. You need to learn this. And I think for the children is the best thing because they have that joy, that love. And if you're approaching children with love and joy and you're excited to teach them things, they're going to pick it up quick and they're going to pick it up like a fun. I think, though, we're in a good place. And going back to the winning, I think our people are realizing how wonderful it is, how cool it is to speak Hawaiian. And more and more people want to gather in those kipuka or those pockets in the community and learn. There's such a hunger for it right now on our age level. There are people teaching Hawaiian for free right now. And it's a wonderful thing. And that's how we're winning right now. One of the things that I found
3: really interesting in what you said is, did you say that partially some of the movements in Hawaii were inspired by the Maori in New Zealand is that right did you yes, say that correct yeah can you can you say a little bit more about that how did that work out
6: yeah you know it was um a group of Hawaiian, a man named Larry Kimura who teaches at UH, UH University of Hawaii Hilo and in a lot of ways he's known as kind of like the godfather <laughs> of Hawaiian language <laughs> revitalization In a lot of ways that's true him and some others and one of my teachers Her name is Auntie Lolana Nicholas, and she's from Ni'ihau. And Ni'ihau is an island in Hawaii where, owned by the Robinsons, the only preserved island since maybe the 1800s, they speak Hawaiian, and their only language has been Hawaiian since then. So having her and Larry, who learned Hawaiian from his elder, that Hawaiian is the second language, and her language, Lolana, first language, and the only language she really knew, they teamed up and with a, with a crew as well. And they went to New Zealand because they knew about the revitalization going on with Ireo Maori. And they went down there to learn from the experts there. Who <laughs> We say experts now, but I'm sure they're figuring out how to do this, you know, grassroots style in yeah. the backyard, whatever. They just knew that the need was big for learning Ereo Maori because you're, you're living on native land. You're living on the land of your ancestors. You're going to question these things, right? Like, why, why do I call it this? But i don't necessarily understand it i think they knew the need and they knew their history there were still those pockets in the community where they were speaking maori they just knew that it was going on a decline kind of like us but for us it was even worse there's maybe less than a hundred elders who could speak hawaiian at one point and on the other side the next generation if they had passed hawaiian was going to be dead so we knew we had to go and figure out a system. That's where those leaders went. They went to New Zealand and they figured out how they were doing it there, teaching the children their speak and then also getting the elders, the makua, for the adults involved as well to revitalize their language. So, yeah, we, we owe a lot to them and we're very thankful. We mahalo them so much. And, you know, they're our, they're our cousins also. We're all related in the Pacific, you know, and our language is very similar to theirs. So I think that it was easy to learn from them and to get that framework and then bring it back to Hawaii. And now it's it's just a wonderful connection and relationship that we have with our cousins down there. Much respect to them and shout out to them. (laughs) Shout out to all the, the educators as well doing this for the love of our language and our people.
3: Yeah, I mean I love that and I like it's so inspiring because it's almost a different way to think of well I was going to say diaspora but a little bit of a different way to think about sort of internationalism is that as indigenous people actually also I think one of the strengths or one of the great hopes for indigenous education and indigenous cultural revival is exactly that different indigenous peoples in different parts of the world are contending with the same thing so in addition to thinking of diaspora as the spread out of people from the homeland there's also this aspect that there are shared experiences that you can reach out for from other indigenous people and that's partially why it's so great to talk to you now jordan it's one of the reasons why it's really nice to talk to
0: you a natural path from the mountain to the sea my ancestors' sea the real glory of Waikiki
1: and so we're back and we are going to be moving this conversation into one that focuses specifically around the mobilization with Mauna Kea. And I'm really interested to hear more about how the Kanaka Maoli, the Native Hawaiians, were able to mobilize their people for this specific cause to protect the Mauna, as well as engage non-Native Hawaiians who also are inhabitants of that land to engage them to be part of this movement and Jordan is going to continue and Marie as well with this conversation.
5: Jordan, could you explain the meaning of Mauna Kea? What does that name mean and the sacredness of the mountain itself?
6: Yes, we have texts that are recording of oral history that has been passed down. So one of the understandings of Mauna Kea refers to (laughs) kea as white and the mauna as mountain or so like a white mountain and also that refers to the snow right the snow on top of the mountain and can point to poliahu with the deity or goddess the akua of uh, snow and you know the word for rich in hawaiian is bai bai and the word for water in hawaiian is bai if you have a lot of water you're rich yeah you're bai bai the water is the most important and the most sacred thing I believe in in Hawaiian culture, and I think to many indigenous cultures in the world. If you have no water and you don't have life, our people we saw Mauna Kea as sacred because we knew that that was the source of life. We have this blessing of water; everything came from there and trickled down, you know, into the valleys and the lowlands and into our aquifer and Mauna'a Waakea, Waakea being sky father in our genealogy and in our mo'olelo, our stories. So Mauna'a Waakea, the mountain of Waakea where he dwells or where where he communes with us. And I think the big thing that a lot of us focus on is, you know, it's connected to our gods or our akua, which is Ahu, which is Waakea, which is kane because kane is a God of water, fresh water, and without them caring for us and providing those resources, uh, that resource of water, uh, we have no life, you know. So, in a nutshell, that's what it is.
5: Thanks for sharing that. I was also watching one of the talks by Lon Aquila and how he was explaining Wakeo Sky Father and Papa Earth Mother and how they got together and out of that union, the mountain was born, right?
6: Yeah, and so in the nineteen sixties, that is when Mauna Kea the first kind of movement happened when the University of Hawaii was granted the permission to build telescopes upon Mauna Kea, I believe it is nineteen sixty eight. And that is less than ten years after Hawaii became a state. So you can see America having a lot of say and power in what they are to do with, you know, the lands here. And many people don't know but there actually were people protesting. There were Hawaiians who never forgot how sacred Mauna Kea is. And for that to take place and to be ignored, definitely was a slap in the face, one after the other, coming from the ban of our language, Hawaii becoming a state, and the Native Hawaiians still not being listened to, not being heard. And then fast forward to the 2000s, we have 13 telescopes built.
1: Can I ask really quick, so in 1968, you said that was the first telescope that they erected (laughs) on the Mauna due to the University of Hawaii, and it was just one telescope. Right. Can you tell us, like, for me, I I don't know too much about it, and maybe some of our listeners don't either, why the fuck were there telescopes? Like, what were they trying to do (laughs) with these telescopes? Why there, and why not somewhere else? Why... This specifically on the Mauna.
6: right? If you look at American history in the '60s, that's when Americans went to the moon, right? And that's when there's many questions and intrigue there. So they wanted
1: to call it start colonizing space, space race, yeah. <laughs> right, competition right, exactly. with Russia. Yes, uh,
6: yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. There was wanting to explore space and question our existence, and I don't know in detail specifically what their initiatives were. But they approved that first telescope. And then throughout the 80s, they also approved a plan to have 13, up to 13 telescopes. And I'm reading a timeline right now on kahea.org. Basically, is, is run by Native Hawaiians and it gives a timeline of events that led up to current events and the movement of today. And says that in 2000, a master plan is developed by UH University of Hawaii, allowing for at least forty new telescopes and support structures. So they already have thirteen structures, and they're allowing—they're planning for forty, and that's just a rabbit hole that is just deeper and deeper that we might not get out of. And how are we going to get out of? You know, I, I was listening to one of the Kiai or the um, protectors of Mauna Kea, mango will and he said and he's Filipino as well, Filipino-Hawaii, and he was saying (laughs) his question to the developers and the people who had the stakes in these projects for so many years, are you Pele? Are you the goddess Pele, the deity Pele? Can you restore this mountain if you choose to construct these telescopes here? And first you have to deconstruct this site and then you have to put these sites up, right? And what power do you have to restore this to its natural state so I thought that was very powerful what he said because yeah they can't restore it and it's sacred land this is sacred land to the Hawaiians yet they're ignoring and they have no compassion
5: I want to add too that in addition to Mauna Kea being a sacred mountain it's also conservation land you're not supposed to build anything that will alter the terrain there but how in the world <laughs> are you going to build a 30 meter telescope without altering the terrain. And there's already accounts of dynamite being used up there. One of the reasons why people are against the telescopes being built up there because there's a long history of mismanagement, trash, construction debris. They wanna build this telescope and they're saying it's gonna be bigger than anything that we have in the entire world. And Mauna Kea is almost 14,000 feet above sea level. It has ideal conditions for astronomy. And I remember one of the signs during the protest was Something along the lines of, you want to see the stars, but you don't see the people. Last night, I was also watching TV about how when they go explore Mars, they have to wash down everything to make sure that they don't alter Mars. But hello, we're here on Earth. How come you don't take that much care of Earth on the planet that we live on right now?
6: Yeah, exactly. Going back to the, the fact that it's conservation land and the deal with it being conservation land is it has to be able to be restored to 100% natural state, and then going back to the hawaiian language you know the ahupua'a or the land division that mauna kea is in is called kaohe and kaohe means bamboo and bamboo was used to transport water or contain water and kaohe is one of the if not the biggest ahupua'a or land division within Hawaii and the ahupua'a system is an old way of dividing the land for its uses and whatnot. But going back to that name and understanding language, Mauna Kea is a place that when it snows, that's millions of gallons of water up there. And that goes down into the aquifer and into the earth and where water collects. And going back to what Marie said about dynamite being used and different materials being put into the earth when construction happens, that's the water that we're gonna be drinking. All that goes into the earth. All that's carried down when the snow melts and the water goes down into our earth. And right below Mauna Kea as well is Kohakuroa, where uh, they have bombing, the U.S. military, they practice their bombing and firing missiles. And there's all kind of live ammunition that possibly haven't been set off. And, is a detriment to the water and the natural resources that are there which also consists of native plants birds endangered birds and other wildlife so it's affecting all of that and i think going back to your question mayo about how we're winning as a people is because now we're we're going back in hawaiian we, we call it hoi hoi ka people Is returning to the source mauna kea has a lake Called Lake Waiale, and we as Hawaiians we see Mauna Kea as uh, our ancestor. It's in our you know our genealogies and deities that live up there and who have authority up there. They are part of our genealogy, and that is our people. That is our, our beginning. And more Hawaiians are learning the language, and we're able to have critical discussions. We're thinking critically in our language and we're analyzing these words and these stories that were passed down for thousands of years because we're able to understand again.
5: Do you want to share with us your experience going up or your process?
6: Yeah. So a lot of people, when they see me in the community, because I work for you know, a Hawaiian nonprofit and I farm and I know different stories and I have a degree in Hawaiian language and studies, they think like, oh, he's done it all. You know, I get that kind of feeling. So, yeah, going to the Mauna, I never actually went growing up. I never even had a field trip. A lot of people, they've been on field trips. In fourth grade, we go to the Big Island. That's a lot of, you know, the schools, they take their kids to Big Island or Hawaii Island. And they go to Mauna Kea. I never had that experience. We never got to go. So my first time was last year. So around the time that I went, you know, I think the first kahea or call went out for people to go up. And I was at work. And I was with my coworker Ryan, and we were like, oh man, we have our kuleana, we have our responsibility here to take care of where we're at at work, and we're, we're gonna just stand by, we to be on standby. And I think it was like a week maybe after the first call, and man, we had a tug in our, we call it our na'au, which is our, our gut. And we had a tug, and we were just, we couldn't even work that day. And I think there were talks about, police going up and maybe even the national guard going up and we're like we need to go we're taking care of Upo you know it's the same fight that the Kiai are facing on the Mauna Mm. and you know all these places are sacred and significant and it's what we have left quote unquote sad to say that but a lot of sites a lot of places and structures have been Taken down and are just text on paper now, or just a memory. A lot of the places that used to exist aren't here anymore, and some of us don't even know what used to be where this Safeway is, or where this Target is, or
2: mm.
6: where this shopping center is. So we're like, we need to go, uh, whatever it takes. And my coworker, he's not even Hawaiian by blood, but he, he has such a love for Hawaii, and we're both encouraging each other like we need to. So we call our boss, and he's up there already. He's like, okay, yeah, I got extra masks if you guys need. I have protective gear. Can yeah, you explain
5: up. what the mask was for?
6: Yeah, so the mask, there talks about police or officers using tear gas or mace, pepper spray, whatnot, rubber bullets. Because some of the protectors up there, they have experience with the Dakota Pipeline and one of the protectors up there, she said, you know, they did it to us when I was up there and you have to be ready for anything. And I think the whole group of protectors up there, they already knew they were ready. They're very aware of what's going on in the other movements out there. I think a beautiful thing that came out of that is kapu aloha. And those terms get used to describe this movement. Kapu, I guess loosely translated meaning taboo but also kapu can mean holding yourself to a standard and not moving from it. So aloha being, <laughs> that's a whole different talk too, but aloha being love, aloha being we're seeing each other for who we are. We have this mutual respect and there's nothing but positivity and care that's coming from our hearts, genuinely. So that's another loose <laughs> you know, definition of what aloha can mean. For us, aloha is many things. But what up there, what it was was just standing our ground and being firm in what we believe in, in who we are as a people, in believing that this is a sacred mountain because our ancestors told us so. It's in our stories, it's in who we are in our genealogy, and standing firm, standing our ground, and recognizing that these are people on the opposite side, just like us. But the difference is, they're getting paid for this job. The motive for them is they're just answering commands from the job but this is our our life that we're putting on the line and saying we recognize you for who you are as people and we have love for you we have uh the utmost respect for you but we're not moving and you're gonna have to do whatever it takes to move us and if you use violence we're not gonna respond with violence you know we're gonna respond with our tears with our songs with love we're gonna we're gonna hug you you know we're gonna just embrace you so And we stayed in that and we didn't waver. So I think that was definitely such a beautiful thing. And on that opposite side was Native Hawaiians as well, in the police uniform or in the DLNR uniform. And you know, it's unfortunate, but that's how it's been for a while, you know. I think only now a lot of us are seeing these fights because of social media and because we're able to tell our own stories. So a lot is attributed to that and the organization of it has come from leaders using the social media platform and using it to inform our people and showing them the truth. So yeah I think part of that experience and knowing that these are our people on the other side too made our our battle made our movement that much more meaningful the soil
0: because the keeps me rooted I don't want to see my culture prostituted.
5: Yeah, I want to go back to what you mentioned about social media being used as a tool, because going back to Mayo's original question, how did people become mobilized? It was, one was social media. We could see instantly what was happening on the Mauna. We could see Kupuna being arrested in real time right. and the call for people to come. They did that through social media right. and so much so that Hawaiians from the continent flew down. And there were GoFundMes. Even when Governor Ige, he was like Hawaiians are smoking and drinking, mm-hmm. and just like that with social media, people turned on their phones and was like, "Look, right. it's the cleanest place." Yeah. People instantly saw what was happening. Props to people who can use social media for the movement. I also want to mention protocol up there.
6: Yeah, you know, protocol is something really new to me actually. And protocol, we've discussed it at Kupu and my community and we're thinking of like the Hawaiian word for protocol and what, what is that word? And maybe the, the word closest to protocol can be pono. For Hawaiians who might be listening to this, might not agree with me, you know, but pono, you know, it's what's just, it's what's right. It's having a state of balance. And so protocol, when you go up to face Akua or to be before something as grand as the Mauna and what's living there and her grandeur you know you want to be prepared to be rid of yourself and really just offer yourself there and your energy and i think it is very special to see kanaka maoli doing old protocol the old oli and then also new oli or chants um and mele or music song that has been written and composed throughout this fight, and seeing just the love and the respect and the reverence that they had there. It was unreal because I don't have many Oli in my book. I don't have many songs or, I guess, proper things that I can offer as far as my voice, you know, but just watching them and then doing the protocol too as we were trained, right? I'm sure you remember that, Marie. They trained us to do some of the Oli, right? And even some of the hula, too. So I think that was a great thing, too, getting others involved who didn't know, like myself, (laughs) who didn't know some of the things they were doing.
5: It was a really cool thing to see how often it was happening and how willing people were to learn and to teach and to be together in that moment for this one purpose, right? Like, it didn't matter who you were. As long as you were willing, you were welcomed.
6: Right, right. Yeah, just having that willing heart. And I guess, you know, it's going back to intention. Intention is a big thing in our culture. And if you have the right intention and you come with respect and humility, you can't go wrong, you know. And I, I saw a lot of that up there. It was something, you know, I've never really witnessed on a grand scale like that with that many people, you know yeah and it just it just showed me the potential that I always knew was there you know for our people so
5: but yeah like this is what could be if we were allowed to do the things we wanted to do like that was an example a, like a real live example, tangible yeah. examples right
6: exactly, so give us the keys to our kingdom again yes. <laughs> right, or you know we'll take it back. <laughs>
5: and we'll be there supporting you.
6: Hey, mahalo, yeah.
1: (laughs) It's very much the theme that I'm seeing with this is the power of accountability, that the call to protect the Mauna was almost like, are you going to take accountability to protect where you're from, to protect literally your identity. And one thing that I found so compelling in what you just shared is that the folks who were on the other side, quote unquote, like the the officers, the people that were sent there to protect the telescopes, not the Mauna, um, were also Hawaiian. These were people you knew that are also from the same place you're from. So I thought it was so, because, you know, like media likes to portray it like, oh, it's the military, the national, especially with what happened at Standing Mm -hmm. Rock with with the, yeah, with the the folks resisting the pipeline up there. It was very much this like a villain thing like oh my god these motherfucking police officers and stuff and (laughs) how they're treating the water protectors but i think the mauna kea movement was such a different way to show resistance because of that integral part of the identity of the kanaka maoli being like you're us too you're not our enemies but we need to be accountable for protecting who we are and where we're from, mm-hmm. and we're doing it through love,
6: <laughs> right?
1: Oh, I love it.
6: <laughs> love wins. Love wins.
1: Love is the engine to the revolution. <laughs>
6: love wins. Yeah, going back to that, the uh, he's the chair of the Dlnr, one of the head guys. His name is uh, Lino Kamakau, and he's one of the de- descendants of. A great Hawaiian historian Samuel Manayakalani Kamakau, who recorded a lot of stories through text for many of years, and he was one of the officials who had to try and stop, you know, us from being in the way of the construction. So I remember watching him on social media cry. And he was he was weeping, and he said, "I'm sorry. You know what I have to do, but you know, I'm the I'm the descendant of." Samuel Kamakao and he's, you know, stating who he was and not denying who he was. The video is up there on YouTube. You all should go look at it. I think the way we can move forward as a people as a whole and what we learned in Mauna Kea is we have to have love and compassion for people, for all people. And Going back to what Marie said, people seeing it on social media and then coming together from all over, booking their flights, you know. I can't tell you how much that means to the kanaka, you know, to our people. Because we see even celebrities, right? Celebrities came and we saw one of our own, Jason Momoa, come. And even The Rock, right? And so many other people. I was there when Damien Marley came. Marley. Yeah, I was there. I was actually on Pooh Hulu. I was up top and he was performing and it was down by the Axis Road. And I, I just heard N.P. Puhu K. say, Damien Marley, you know, and like mahalo for coming and joining us bob marley's son one of the greatest social activists and civil rights movement in jamaica and whatnot and his son is here and rushed down that hill to go and you know listen to his music and just beautiful to see the different people coming from all over no matter who you are or what race or ethnicity or whatever we're all a part of the same people you know and
1: do you think it was really the, the calling of love that engaged people who were not Native Hawaiian yeah. to come join? What do you think definitely, brought
6: them in? Definitely, because I always feel that the truth always comes to the surface eventually. And, you know, people were seeing that the truth was what we needed to do is believe in who we are as a people. And we need to dig deep in we need to see each other for who we are and realize that we actually have more similarities than differences and that we're all striving for the same things deep down inside. But yeah, it's definitely a calling of, of love and, and many more things too, you know, and I, it's not just our people, all indigenous people, right?
5: Yeah, I think definitely that shared sense of love for the land and our shared struggles were one of the main reasons why people from all over answered the call to protect the Mauna. And I decided to go because we are mountain people. Native Hawaiians are actively fighting to protect their mountains just like we are back home. Again, there's that shared sense of understanding and experience of fighting for your rights and your culture. But at the same time, it's not just about culture versus science. It's also about power, yeah? Who gets to decide what is sacred? After all is said and done, who gets to decide what will actually happen? And I also want to mention that the number of Filipinos who went up to the Mauna did not reflect the number of Filipinos here in Hawaii. There should have been a lot more of us up there. And of course, not everyone had the means to go up. But I do think that there are so many of us here that we have a responsibility to support Kanaka, especially when about half of Hawaiians now live outside of Hawaii because it's so expensive. And during a talk story session that Decolonial Pinay is hosted for the Filipino community in Kalihi to discuss Mauna Kea and what our roles and responsibilities are, a friend who had just gotten back from a trip to the Philippines with her mom to visit their home in the Cordillera, Shared that they also talked with folks who told their stories of being met with state-sanctioned violence for wanting to protect their rights as indigenous peoples. And then they returned to Hawaii at the exact time when Kupuna Hawaiian elders were being arrested on the Mauna. Police were showing up in full riot gear, like Jordan was mentioning. There was concern over the National Guard and the LRAD was brought up there, which is a long-range acoustic device. It's also considered a sonic weapon, and. There were Hawaiians who were standing on the Mauna as kia'i, as protectors, and there were Hawaiians who were police officers. And when I saw the tears coming down, it resonated with me because as an Igorot, as an indigenous person, as a Filipino, we know what that division creates or what that division looks like because it's been happening to us for so, so long. Communities have been divided by militarization and foreign entities who do not have our best interests at heart. It brought me back to this news clip that I saw a few years ago about Igorots in the Philippine military and hyping them up as warriors. And the framing of military enlistment as a pathway to continue the ways of our ancestors really disturbed me. Yeah. So. And then, of course, here in diaspora, there are so many of us Filipinos and Pacific Islanders who were enlisted in the military. I know many of our BBOC elders saw the military as a pathway to the U.S. And um, the group that I went up to the Mauna with was intergenerational. We had an elder with us. There was a baby in our group who was strapped to his mama while she danced around us. Originally, there were two younger men who were planning to go with us. We all met together, we practiced together, we discussed how important it was for us to go. But one of them was going through the process of being recruited into the U.S. military, and he was advised not to go. If something happened where he would have some type of encounter with the police, he was told that it could affect his recruitment negatively and potentially affect the status of his family members who were already in the military. So at our last practice We also talked about the complexities of being brown in the military. And what is the price for all these benefits? What do you give up? And what do you contribute to?
1: Militarization has... Historically and currently divided our people. Um, it has existed concept. Yeah, the, in- and it's like tangible why people want to join the military from our communities because there's merits, there's benefits, immigration That's- status, you know, a pathway to Im- to citizenship. The fact that the Philippine Military Academy (PMA) is based in the Cordillera, <laughs> you know what yeah, I, I mean? Is
5: <laughs> and getting inside PMA, everything is paid for there is such a gigantic benefit of being a PMA student. And was that last year? The kid who died from hazing? We all kind of know that hazing happens in the PMA, but they would risk that because it's free, you get allowance, everything is paid for, your future is basically, it's set. And who does it target but the people who don't have the
2: privilege to have options where to go to school or like what to do. Right. It's also a source of prestige for some families. Uh-oh. Yeah. And, you know, they do have economic programs. They will pay for you to go to school. And yes. if you don't want, <laughs> those, <laughs> that, you know, it's yes. for basically selling your body to enact state violence. and yeah. Become just, a tool of the state, basically. Uh-huh. That's
1: literally also when I talk to my Chamorro friends from Guam. Same thing. Same fucking thing. I was supposed to be a cadet.
4: Perfect! <laughs> 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 yeah, pero like, I fell one inch short of the height requirement. So si Daddy nagtuturo don, so was the logical step na to be a cadet. But my height did not meet the requirements, and now I went to UP and became gay as fuck.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking yeah. about indoctrination in UP, I mean, the military has their own indoctrination as well. It, and yeah. it's really deep. It's just a complex, it's a global one, not just in the Philippines, you know. It's also uh-huh. in the United States. They target poor communities. Uh-huh. Not just of color, but of, like, white people as well. Mm. You know, that's where they actively recruit. And it's just, like, these are very young kids. 18, 19-year-old kids that are fresh out of high school. So malleable to different ideas. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's easy to train them to go to a different place and (laughs) basically harm people. Because you're, you're doing this for something that's abstract. An ex-marine put it in the sense that even as a soldier you're you're already dehumanized. You're called a yeah. body. You're called boots on the ground. So you're trained not to think for yourself. You have to answer to orders. Yeah. Ang twisted ng ano like
1: yung how becoming
5: part of the military is like continuing your indigenous heritage
4: because
5: and that's really twisted that is messed no, I up was in, I was in DC yeah. on the metro watching that video and I was crying and like people didn't know what was going on with
1: me I want to take it back to what Jordan said because it's like okay I'm, I'm imagine I'm, I'm a very visual learner so I'm imagining okay you see another kapua or like your own kanaka maoli person like community member in front of you mm-hmm. yet but they're protecting the tmt they're protecting these telescopes and you're there you know as someone who's trying to protect the mauna and not the telescopes. right and then you're saying to them like you know like you're one of us come join us and this this is part of who you are and then the person that you're talking to you know protecting the telescope is like i'm sorry but this is my job I- mm-hmm. i'm sorry and then like okay now what you know, like, I, I'm trying to envision, like, how does that love still push through right. with, with that kind of mentality? Because that's what I'm trying to understand when I talk to Igorots who are joining the military.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: How does that love interaction look like when it, it's meeting, head-butting, face-to-face?
6: Yeah, it's unconditional love. It's the recognition on our side, seeing your brother or your sister on the other side and, you know, empathizing with them as well they were basically brainwashed to think that this is the right thing to do. Mm
2: -hmm. This
6: is the right occupation to get into because, you know, the benefits and the merit and things like that, what you guys have been talking about. And understanding that, like, deep inside, there is this sense of identity and this person that needs to be called out. You are one of us. You are, you know, and you have a deeper kuleana. You have a deeper responsibility within you that needs to be challenged right now. What side will you be on, you know, in history? When you're in the moment, and face-to-face with opposition, and I always think, I'm gonna be on this side of history. My descendants are gonna see their ancestor and say that he was fighting to keep our language alive. He was fighting to keep our land, Hawaiian land, and to keep it pure and to be who we are, you know? He's basically fighting for our identity and our freedom to be who we are.
5: One of the things that stuck with me, again, something that we saw on social media was like an exchange of Kia'i asking police officers. When my grandchildren asked me about Mauna and what side of history I was on, I can proudly say I was protecting it. But what about you? What are you going to tell your grandchildren?
6: Yeah, I think you have to. You have to do that. You have to let that part of them think you know, the humanness, right? When that side of who they are or what they've taken on as far as being the authorities and officials has been dehumanizing. We have to talk to the human in them and say, what side will you be on? Seriously, because we, your grandchildren and my grandchildren are gonna be going to school together. They're gonna to be in the same community. And what kind of generation is, is the next generation going to be? I think we have to have that, those conversations with our brothers and sisters on the other side, whether it's at a dinner table or whether it's out in the community, we have to call that out in them. It's a bold thing to do, but I think it's the right thing to do, you know? And I I think that's what we're going to see. We're going to see people resigning. We're going to see people uh, giving up those positions and coming to fight the good fight for our identities, for our, our livelihoods. As Indigenous people, so uh, it's an exciting thing.
1: That's everything you just said. I swear is like what a blessing. Thank you for this offering, because I, I am really learning now how we win, and it's for y'all. It's aloha, and for us, it's it's been kapwa, and you know it's been it's been co-opted by some folks, but really, really? it really. It's, it's it's
0: kailian,
1: Ka, yeah, kailian. For yeah. the folks who don't know about ili, because that's a very Igorot.
6: Yes. thing. Uh, I need that. I need it. Yeah, <laughs> give me the definition. And
1: now our kaili. Yeah, Jordan. the kapwa, the kapwa
6: thing though. <laughs> like for
1: yeah. me, is like it's still it's still indigenous. It's ours. It's it was ours. It, it's yes, been, yeah. And kadwa, you know, kakadwa. Like, yes, there's, so yes. many, there's so many iterations of mm-hmm. sharing, like, seeing yourself in someone else. So, you have this shared self reflecting. That's crazy. That's yeah, that's yeah. what that means. And then Ili is literally both, well, Kervin might be able to explain this better yeah, than me, yeah. but for how I understand it, it's like, it's where you know you belong, basically. It can be 100%. Wow. Yeah.
6: Wait the hawaiian word for skin is ili. <gasps> wow and so kaili is the skin not a skin not the skin it's the skin it's one so kaili meaning like your skin like my skin where i'm meant to be
1: oh my god i love that because it's not even about like colorism it's like yeah, the, the... Being, right? yeah. that's amazing yeah and yeah I'm like taking a moment right now, and I'm sure the others are too. With all of oh. this, you have no idea what it does to like natives and like, I'm just saying, Filipinos in general, when we're like, oh my God, we connect in some way. Yeah. It's just like all <laughs> yeah. of a sudden, like, oh my God, connections with other people, hooray. You yeah. Know? <laughs>
6: yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, same, likewise, likewise, yeah.
1: And so what you shared with us today, Jordan, is, is that it's exactly that, like, Oh my God, we're so connected for as much as maybe we've been taught to, to vilify one another. We know that we were just, we were brainwashed. I mean, like the tools of colonization, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Right. And that we are not that, that we can remember where we're from again. Mm -hmm. We can remember where we belong and who we belong to again. And then that's right. what we can remember, you know, which side of present history we're, we're going to be on.
6: Oh, yeah. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. For me, it's definitely an eye-opening experience, heart-opening experience, or gut-opening experience, too, as far as, you know, being Filipino and not even knowing what it means, you know, growing up. When I went to the Mona, you know, there are Filipino people going up there. And then as I looked around, there are more and more Filipino people and people I've seen in the community who are Filipino and in the, you know, the university community. And then I saw other indigenous people there. I had to kind of, I guess, look into myself. And then as I looked outward and realized that we're all in the same battle of decolonizing our minds, our, right. our spirits. And. And I had to reflect on all the things that I've been through growing up, of what it was being a Filipino growing up, and understand that I am, and nothing's going to take that away from me. And I'm Hawaiian, nothing's going to take that away from me as well. So, And to have you know this relationship with you folks now, as far as being in new friendships, and it's really refreshing. Many of my family members grew up not knowing what it was to be Filipino, and were attached to these different things that society said we should be, or what we should do, and so thank you so much for bridging that for me. I'm um, so humbled and grateful to be part of this conversation.
2: Thank you. Thank the you. honor is ours. Mahalo. Mahalo. Mahalo,
5: Jordan. Salah salamat for spending time with us and sharing your experience, your knowledge, and your love. As we close out this episode, I also want to thank Punahele, another Kia'i, another protector who was on the Mono, for letting us use his music from his album, The Menehune Giant. Don't forget to check back with us next week for part three of the Little Brown movement, where we will be focusing on the Black Lives Matter movement.
0: Some would say that my work is revolutionary. Cause I tell my youngest not to join the military Giving mana'o from Aloha the visionaries Like Moani Keala, and Auntie Terry. We was called savages by the missionaries Who had deception and greed in their itineraries Look to the source and destroy our adversaries Keala, Kekua, the 14th of February The it flows in our blood, it's hereditary Those who stood for the Aina became legendary In the righteousness that is customary So we crush corrupt cowards and the mercenaries They wonder why Why? I tend to keep my hands inside the dirt To heal the land is to heal my people of this hurt You wonder why Why? we tend to keep our hands inside the dirt To heal the land is to heal our people of this hurt